This is a climate change. This is Matt Matter, your host. And I've got Jared Nelson, uh, Deputy Director of the U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. Uh, Garrett, uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Really excited to uh, discuss all the work going on here at the DOE and in the solar industry at large. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what uh, what brought you to this <clears throat> position at the Department of Energy. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, I'll give you a quick background about how I just got into solar energy to begin with. Uh, it's kind of interesting. So, remember when I was young as a, as a Cub Scout, my dad used to work for an optics company. And he came home one day with a big lens that we used to basically cook a, cook a hot dog in the driveway, which included burning a hole through the hot dog. And I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world, the power of the sun. And fast forward, like, you know, another 10, probably seven or eight years, I grew up in Connecticut outside Hartford, and I would drive down to New Jersey for baseball camp every summer. And I remember driving past the huge warehouses outside of New York and being like, what are they doing on the roof up there? Like, shouldn't we be using that for like growing food or energy or something like that? And then finally, fast forward a few years after that, it's right after I finished my undergrad, I'm sitting in the dentist's office and I pick up a National Geographic uh, magazine that talks about how the world after oil. And it says, you know, if we cover some certain percentage of America's urban and suburban rooftops with solar energy, we can power America. And so it was like, at that moment in time, all of these kind of stars aligned. And that's what made me want to get into solar energy. It took me a, a few more years, but I ended up at the DOE, which I think is a, an excellent place to be just because of the, the perspective that we get to have, you know, the 100,000 foot view in its most traditional sense to, to touch on and work on basically every facet of solar energy that you could think of here in the United States to accelerate deployment. So that's that's the very fast about how I kind of ended up here and what uh, brought me into solar. Well, a fascinating story. I think all of us can relate as uh, young kids playing with magnifying glasses and seeing, uh, you know, what what can happen when you concentrate the rays of the sun. It's a, a powerful tool. So we've seen a tremendous trajectory in the development of solar over the last 50 years. And, and uh you're, you know, the Department of Energy has pretty ambitious goals as to what percentage of uh, power the U.S. will derive from solar going out until 2050. Uh, we have to develop a tremendous amount of power. Are we on track? Uh, how, how much have we uh, sped up that process, say, in the last uh, two years? So it's, we are, there's still work that needs to be done. We're seeing tremendous growth still year over year in terms of solar energy with you know, well over hundred gigawatts deployed today. But if we look out, uh, our, our office released something called the Solar Future Study last fall, where we looked into how much solar energy are we gonna need on the grid to decarbonize the electricity, decarbonize 95% of the electricity sector. Figuring out that last 5% is very tricky from a modeling and cost standpoint. But if we look at it from a 95% decarbonization of the spectrum, we need roughly one terawatt of solar energy deployed on the grid today, which is about 10x what we have out there right now. To do this, we need to be averaging a deployment in the neighborhood of about 35 gigawatts a year between now and 2025, and averaging between about 60 gigawatts a year between 2025 and 2030, and then sustaining that deployment. And right now, we deploy in the neighborhood of about 20, maybe a little bit more gigawatts per year. So this is much, much more than we used to have um, for me on a year-on-year basis. But there's still some work to be done to be able to deploying at, at the, the speed and volume that we need to reach our goals. And so there's a number of factors that go into uh, how we can, we can certainly drive that deployment. And us at the Department of Energy are, are very focused, especially under this administration, to driving down those costs, reducing those barriers, 
and making sure that we can accelerate that deployment curve to, to meet those ambitious decarbonization goals for both the electricity sector in 2035 and beyond that, looking at the entire economy by 2050. Now, currently, we're relying a lot upon on, um, Chinese-made uh, solar panels, correct? And, and what are we doing uh, to reduce that reliance? Yeah, correct. A, a vast majority of the modules in the U.S. these days come from Asia in general. Um, in a number of cases, it's you know Chinese companies that have uh, facilities in, in Southeast Asia. And so over the years, there have been you know, policy decisions to put tariffs on different devices. I'll just be very clear that my office, we don't, we don't make policy decisions. We don't work on tariffs. We're very much technology-oriented. The way we've been thinking about it is, one, how can we drive down the cost of manufacturing in general, such that we might be able to manufacture it here and be cost-competitive on a global scale? We also try to look to the future to new technologies where we might be able to, say, leapfrog the current incumbent of silicon. And, and find something that might be more amenable to domestic manufacture. The biggest item coming out um, recently is, is the Inflation Reduction Act. And so, I'm, again, I'm not a, a policy person, I'm a career uh, technology guy, but there is a, a raft of incentives in there which should drive uh, domestic manufacturing uh, to the point where we feel that the USA may be eventually be able to be self-sufficient in terms of its manufacturing capacity to reach those very ambitious goals. And so it's a combination of Driving down, driving technology forward, driving down manufacturing costs in general, working with manufacturers to help them understand the opportunities in the United States where they can site manufacturing facilities and so forth. And then now we have a kind of a policy construct wrapped around it, which should really accelerate the deployment. We're seeing a lot of announcements from very major manufacturers about potential plans to, to build out here in the United States. Well, that's uh, that's exciting and, and a good development because obviously it uh, doesn't make sense to have our energy future in the hands of other countries when we can make these panels here in the U.S. Uh, we certainly have the technology. I think we were the forerunners in this technology at one point in time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the first solar cells were really reduced to practice at Bell Labs in the 50s. And if you look out to like the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, USA was a dominant manufacturer of solar modules, predominantly in that case for space or remote applications. Um, but then eventually over time, um, particularly in China, they, they put policies and, and kind of just broader plans in place to really ramp up the capacity that they have there. And that subsequently just based on economics shifted the shifted the market, the manufacturing market, I should say, towards, towards Asia. Well, I, I saw that uh, you had been in the process of helping develop this cadmium telluride um, process for solar panels. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and and why uh, the Department of Energy is excited about that technology. Yeah, so cadmium telluride has, has been around for a while and the Department of Energy is one of the early investors in kind of that, that basic science and technology. We continue to invest in it today. Um, so we in the United States are the largest employer of cadmium telluride modules around the world. We get about 16% of our solar electricity from cadmium telluride. We're home to the largest cadmium telluride manufacturer and for solar. And so this is a space where it's, you know, it's an alternative to traditional silicon, has some advantages in terms of the processes that are used to deposit the material, um, in terms of some performance factors compared to silicon. In terms of cost, you know, it's, it's competitive here in the United States with imported silicon. And so this is something where we want to continue to push that technology forward, continue to uh, drive ahead in a space where we have the, the leading industrial entity in the world in this technology space. 
And so we're continuing to look at how do we drive up efficiency? How do we drive down costs? And increasingly looking to how can you maybe combine cadmium telluride with, with other technologies and what we call tandem devices to see what, what the next generation of, of modules can be in that space. So we're always very excited to be investing in that area and helping you know, domestic companies really continue to maintain a competitive and technological advantage. I guess the question then is, uh, how does the Department of Energy um, decide whether or not to invest? And, it, you know, there's a concern that the government is then picking winners and is the government well positioned to pick winners? That type of question arises. Well, I should say that, you know, vast, if not all, almost all of our research the goal was to have that make it into the public domain. And so while we've, we do a lot of research in Cadell, and there is you know, a large Cadell entity here, there are some other smaller Cadell companies in the United States that are also able to leverage that research. Our role at the Department of Energy is really to continue to push science forward and engineering forward in a way that is ultimately best pre-competitive. And so we want to make sure that we're getting things out into the public domain and that we're also kind of helping those technologies be transferred and utilized in, a, in, in the private sector writ large. So again, we want to make sure that we're, we're investing in pushing science and engineering knowledge forward. And then ultimately, the private sector can make decisions based on economics and other factors about how they want to utilize that in the broader market space. Well, it's certainly important. I, I think the government has a role in that, even though I was you know, playing devil's advocate uh, a bit. I mean, you, you look at, we, we would be essentially unilaterally disarming if our government isn't involved in that space because the, you know, the Chinese government for sure and the European governments for sure are involved in uh, supporting technology companies in their respective regions. So uh, it, it would kind of be silly for us to, you know, cede all territory and let them kind of beat us on the technology front. Right, and I, I agree completely. And we, and we do certainly, the DOE does support, you know, startup businesses, does support tech transfer to, to larger businesses. I think, you know, we're just as an, as an agency, very cognizant of trying to find our sweet spot where we can get the most bang for our buck and then turn technologies over to, you know, corporate or private sector entities that can then get the most bang for their buck for the next section of deployment. So yeah, we wanna make sure we understand exactly what is going on in the private sector what we can bring to them in terms of new technologies, how we can leverage our brilliant national labs, our brilliant professors at universities, and just the incredible industrial base that we have, or research base that we have to drive those technologies forward and then subsequently connect them to the private sector so they can be utilized for, for national gain. And so I think that's a, that's a very important role that, that we, we play and one that we take very seriously. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern uh, and our guest today, Garrett Nelson, Deputy Director of the U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. Uh, we're talking with Garrett about solar and, and what the future of solar looks like, as well as what the present uh, looks like. We'll be back in just one minute. Stay tuned. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter. I've got Garrett Nilsson on the program today, Deputy Director of U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. And uh, Garrett, we were talking about some new technologies that the Department of Energy is uh, helping deploy or investing in. I guess uh, one question I have is, are those investments that the department is making in terms of loans or are those grants or both? 
Uh, so from our office specifically, we fund everything through grants or another vehicle we call a cooperative agreement, which is a, a style of grant. Um, our office doesn't do loans. That generally comes from the loan programs office. They're looking to do very large investments in, say, manufacturing facilities, first of its kind, large-scale generation or storage systems and things of that nature. But our office is focused on uh, delivering grants and, and financial assistance for those mechanisms. Okay. I, I saw that uh, one of the things that uh, you're uh, working with is, and I may mispronounce this, peroscovites, uh, which are a cheap alternative to silicon. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and, and why uh, the department is excited about that one. Sure. So it's, a, it's a perovskites. And so perovskites is basically a structure of materials that you can then swap in and out different, um, different uh, uh, elements. And what's really interesting about perovskites is that we've, we've seen just a, a rapid increase in terms of the efficiency that researchers are able to make with devices, going from single digits efficiencies up to 20 plus efficiency over the course of a few years, which is really eye-opening. Uh, one of the challenges to date has been, of course, making them durable enough to last the 20, 30, 40, 50 years we need to reach the kind of cost goals that we, we feel are needed to have rapid deployment. So what's really interesting about perovskites is that it is also be able to be de uh, deposited, I should say, in, in very simple processes. A silicon uh, solar module takes, there's a mining element of the original quartz. You have to process that over to um, very pure polysilicon cut that into wafers, process it into a cell, put it in a module. So there's a lot of steps in there that can be time and energy intensive. With perovskites with the right mix of materials, you might be able to deposit this using roll-to-roll coating. And the U.S. has many roll-to-roll coders and expertise in roll-to-roll coders around the United States or other more simple deposition processes, which then cut down on the number of steps, might allow for the ability to increase some of the automation, which can also drive down costs. And it leverages technologies where we might already have assets in the U.S. or at a bare minimum, we have a lot of expertise around the manufacturing techniques that go with these. So we're very interested in this space. It's something that we're investing a fair amount in every year, both in terms of driving the research forward in universities and national labs to understand how they work, how they degrade, how we can make them more durable. And also starting to fund some of the work with some of the earlier startup companies. We're looking at how do we translate this out to large scale and others. A lot of hype around these things, and we believe that it's it's certainly exciting, but there's still a lot of work to go before we can be printing, you know, many square miles of this to be deploying the, the terawatts of solar energy that we'll need. So we're, we're excited about the prospects of what prospects could be, but but there's work to be done, and we're excited to be helping lead that. Well, it is a, an exciting area, and I guess uh, one of the things I'd ask you to kind of explain to us is the efficiencies that you're talking about and that uh, what does that mean in in kind of like day-to-day -day language uh, and and kind of, um, you know, to us as consumers of this? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when we talk about efficiency, we're talking about the number of photons essentially that hit a solar cell that can then subsequently be converted into electricity. And so the solar modules that are put out in the world today, whether they're silicon solar cells, perovskites, CADs or what have you, these are all considered what we call single junction solar cells. So there's one positive end, one negative end, the light hits it, knocks an electron loose, and it's then able to go out and do some sort of work. The kind of theoretical maximum for a single junction solar cell is a little bit over 30%. It's called the Shockley quasar limit. But in the practical end of the spectrum, 
it's it's closer to uh, you know in the low 20s to mid 20s percent in terms of efficiency, and we see module makers and cell makers starting to push up against that efficiency limit, which is really exciting. Um, and the more we see those cells go up, the less area we need to, to make the same amount of energy, which then reduces rooftop usage, reduces land consumption, and so forth. So we're looking to try to see how can we maximize reaching those kinds of efficiency limits, but then looking at how do we push beyond that? How can we take two single junction devices and put them on top of one another to make what we call a tandem device? This is something that is still in its infancy that we're very proud to be funding at National Labs Universities and working with some businesses who are thinking about this as well. So we can continue to drive up the efficiency of modules, which then drives down costs on everything else. So you can imagine if you have a much more, if you have a more efficient seller module, not only do you need less area, but you need less steel for the racking and tracking you're gonna put in the field and so forth. So there's a lot of system level efficiencies that derive from it, which is why that's an area that, uh, that the research community focuses on a lot. But I should say that efficiency is great, but also we, all, we also need things to be durable and to be lasting 20 or 30 years to make the economic, or longer to make the economics work as, as optimally as possible. Right. So uh, just pivoting a little bit, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the department is doing regarding grid technologies? And, and uh, now that we're making uh, so much more solar power, we certainly hear about that there are challenges in storing it for those rainy days and those times when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to some guests about uh, storing it in hydrogen. Um, and uh, what uh, is the department doing kind of related to storing energy, whether it's hydrogen or battery technology? What, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so the DOE is obviously taking the storage challenge very seriously. I'm looking at a wide diversity of different storage technologies. You know, we hear predominantly about kind of lithium ion batteries today. This is what we're seeing deployed for, you know, two, four, eight hour kind of durations of storage. And, you know, things like hydrogen will be very important if we want to be able to transfer energy, let's say, um, as a, in a storage medium like hydrogen or store it from, for some other time, maybe beyond that sort of that eight hour storage window. Our office uh, is also a big investor in concentrating solar thermal power. And what's beautiful about concentrating solar thermal power is then you can store thermal heat pretty efficiently. And so we're looking at long duration energy storage through the use of say molten salt in large vats that could be then be used in concert with a concentrating solar thermal power system or as a standalone asset connected to the grid to be able to provide some of that longer duration storage. And you know, for folks who are really interested in long duration storage, I encourage uh, people to look into our long duration storage earth shot here at the Department of Energy, this administration is launching a number of earth routes to drive down the cost of different aspects of, um, of storage technologies, hydrogen, and, and other technologies to, to drive the decarbonization of the U.S. Mm. And so storage is, is absolutely something that we look at. We, we try to look very closely at the interaction between solar energy assets and storage and how can we control both most optimally to use them most efficiently. And then in terms of the grid writ large, there's a lot more technology that I could go into too that gets me really excited about, you know, that will work in concert with solar and storage to make the solar driven grid of the future. Where where are we in in relationship to uh, storage and doing it efficiently? And you know, as you're talking about the molten salt storage, uh, is that really be being done commercially? And uh, where can we expect it to be in two, three, four, five years? Uh, is it going to, uh, is there going to be enough of it to deal with the 
massive amount of new solar and wind that's coming online. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the near term, given the amounts of solar that we're probably going to see deployed in different localized penetration levels, we should be pretty good with kind of lithium ion in the relative near term to, to shift uh, storage around, to shift energy around. For uh, thermal storage like uh, molten salts, that is something that we see deployed in concert with concentrating solar power systems around the globe. And so there's a lot of great lessons being learned there. We're still learning lessons from some of the early thermal energy uh, storage deployments here in the United States, but there's still more research to be done and more kind of demonstration to be done to, to drive that customer acceptance. And so we're hoping to drive some of that uh, demonstration work forward over the next few years with the goal that this can be adopted among other storage solutions, you know, maybe in the latter half of the decade to, uh, or, or maybe a little bit after that into the 2030s, to really fill that longer duration gap. So we can think about storing energy for weeks, days, months, whatever it is that becomes a little bit more economical than say using lithium ion batteries. I think the good thing is though, is that regardless of the storage medium, the, the more we make, the more we learn, the more costs come down. And so right now the grid storage space is absolutely benefiting from the scale that we're seeing in uh, car-based car lithium ion batteries and the cost drivers that are pushing that down. And then as we see other countries and other parts of the world try out different technologies, as we try out different technologies, we expect to see a, a cost curve on all those come down as well to the point where they're economically feasible and deployable. Well, looking at the grid as far as, uh, or I should say a map of the U.S. in terms of price per kilowatt and uh, for, for electricity and seeing where it's at right now around 10, 12, 15 cents in, in many places, uh, are we going to see that continue to go down as we implement more solar and wind, or are we going to see the cost of energy, uh, electricity go up as we deploy more of it? So way we are looking at it, I mean, in our solar future study, we dedicated a section of the, the report to this, where we did some modeling and we said, all right, with some modest improvements in technologies um, and continued kind of movements around the current trajectory of cost curves, we believe that we will be able to reach a broadly decarbonized or decarbonized economy with, with potentially even saving money for the consumer. And that doesn't even count the broader benefits of, say, removing uh, you know, polluting assets from, from our air and the, the associated health benefits and so forth. So there's, there's work that's needed, but we believe that it is possible to be delivering those savings to the consumer. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Garrett Nelson, Deputy Director of the U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. Uh, we're talking about solar, and we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Garrett Nelson, Deputy Director of the U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. And Garrett, we were just talking about the cost of electricity, and I was noticing that California is a bit of an outlier at uh, 25 cents, I think, a kilowatt hour. And and wondering, you know, we've got a lot of listeners here in California, kind of wondering why why are why is our cost higher than other markets, and uh, is there something that we're missing here? Uh, and and yeah, I mean, I you know, California is obviously on on the forefront of or has always been on the forefront in terms of moving away from fossil assets, adopting new technologies, and now these days adopting new ways of charging for technologies such as time of use rates. 
And so there's a, there's a whole mountain of different things that go into determining someone's electricity rate, particularly as it kind of varies throughout the day. And so, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an, an expert at, at defining uh, market costs and the drivers of markets in general, but uh, we feel that as we continue to put more solar assets out there, as we continue to figure out how to balance all of these assets on the grid, that we will see re reductions in cost um, for the consumer. But again, these are these are very complex processes. Setting a utility rate, um, it's not as simple as say setting maybe a water rate or something like that. Um, but again, we feel like if we're just continuing to drive down costs around technologies writ large, uh, that ultimately they will be adopted by market forces, and that should subsequently drive down um, cost to the consumer. So, well, it's hard for me to let pass that uh, comment of it's easier than water rates uh, out here in California. There's a maybe it's. Yeah. Pretty complex yeah. battle over who gets the water and how much it could should cost everybody. So yeah, I should I should have thought that through before saying it, but maybe it's more simple than something else. But that's that's a fair point. I didn't need to touch a, a sensitive topic there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty hot topic right now, and uh, you know, and I think across the uh, the entire American Southwest it, and and probably other places too in the in the states, uh, water rates and what we should charge is is a big big yeah. question. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a great thing that California has achieved, I think, in April, 100 uh, percent of its electricity for a, a moment in time was all renewable, which was a pretty fantastic uh, leap. And I think, uh, you, you know, we're seeing other states ramp up their uh, usage rates of renewables. And, um, you know, I, I I think that's a tremendous thing. Or The question is, how can we encourage it to go further and and we were talking a little bit offline about new markets for solar maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what uh what the department of energy is looking at in that area yeah so as as we you know our, our core mission is driving down the electricity that going to consumers we're continuing to look at you know new markets both in terms of how can we generate electricity closer to its point of consumption or how can we get dual benefits out of solar energy so the one that people try to talk about a fair amount is building integrated photovoltaic. So how can we actually integrate photovoltaics into the building envelope? So they're serving both the purpose of the building envelope and generating electricity at the point of consumption, which can then cut down on any transmission costs and all those other things that come with moving electricity around. Another one we're interested in, particularly given vehicle, uh, uh, the advent of electric vehicles is vehicle integrated photovoltaics. Now, it does require a lot of electricity to power a battery, but if we can just get marginal amounts or a little bit of amounts from something that might be integrated into a car, that's certainly something that we're very interested in. I think what gets us, us most excited these days is an area of uh, the intersection of agriculture and photovoltaics, something where there's being a, called agrovoltaics um, in the industry. What's really interesting about this is one, you know, there's a number of people out there in prime farmland country that are concerned that solar is coming in and, and taking farmland to be used for solar at the detriment of say agricultural uses. And so we're investing a lot in research to understand, all right, if we can put the module say up a little bit higher, like what happens to the crops that we could potentially grow underneath these modules? And we're seeing some really fascinating results, both in terms of potentially um, increasing growing seasons in like the, the hot Southwest, um, growing different kinds and maybe higher margin crops underneath modules than set underneath modules in different areas. And we're also seeing just maybe an increase in production. And one really exciting part it, and related to water is a reduction in water use. One thing that's really interesting is that, you know, you put modules over something and we're investigating what the spacing has to be and so forth. When you grow 
crops underneath it. Well, one, you have a little bit more shade over the crop, so you're going to keep a little bit more of the groundwater in the ground, which allows you to use the water you have a little bit more efficiently. What's also really interesting is that, you know, plants sweat, and so they perspire some water that will go up and hit the back of a module, which will cool the module. And the cooler your module is, the more efficient it is when it's operating. And so you end up in this really interesting kind of like symbiotic relationship. And so we're really trying to quantify and study rigorously the the kind of confluence of agriculture and photovoltaics, whether this is crop growth underneath plants, um, pollinator species being grown underneath plants to then help the productivity of surrounding farmland, or even looking at like, how could these be done if you're um, harvesting livestock of different types? And so there's a lot of really interesting work to be done there. There is a program called INSPIRE through the National Renewable Energy Lab, which is looking into this for a few years and really driving a lot of test sites in this area. And we feel that as we can find kind of like symbiotic relationships between solar energy and agriculture, we can end up in a situation where there's less concern, let's say, about um, uh, arguments around how land should be used. And maybe it can actually be a win-win for solar and agriculture instead of just one winning or the other, which is how a lot of people tend to view it today. Well, that is fascinating. And, and certainly the uh, symbiotic nature of uh, one helping the other is uh, is something I hadn't heard about, and you know, it'd be great if uh, if both areas are are getting wins from it because we do have a, a major water problem certainly in the American Southwest, and we need to uh, get it get some some solutions to it pretty quick. Yeah, well, that's that's totally fair. Um, and the more we can do to just think about the economic use of whether it's an input like water, whether it's land or anything else, the better off we'll be as a, as a economy as a whole. You know, I, I do have a question in terms of, you know, as we continue to get more efficient uh, solar uh, panels that um, are going to deliver more energy, uh, as a consumer, should they wait or, you know, till you get the most efficient in 10 years time, or should you buy them now and know, hey, I'm not going to get the most efficient, but I'll get the best one that exists today and it'll be good enough to uh, put in my house? I mean, I'm, I'm always on the side of, of a dollar to me saved today is worth more to me than a dollar I might save in the future. So I know I personally, when I, when I went solar on my roof, I'd put it on basically as soon as, as soon as I bought my home because I saw that I could save money in the immediate term. And, you know, I think the important thing for people to look at is, is what savings can they have today? How will that impact their household? And then, you know, also look at the payback periods. So if it only takes a few years, the payback period is a little bit different everywhere in the United States, but it only takes a few years to pay your system back. You know, you can potentially move on to a higher efficiency technology, you know, maybe before the system on your roof stops working. And so it's a, it's a constantly evolving kind of landscape people have to both look at what they want to save, what they want out of their solar system. If you're, there are more and more people today who are very concerned about just being self-sufficient, not wanting to rely on the grid as much. So if that's a driver, that changes the economics too. And you might say, look, I'll take the products all as they work today, the solar power, the storage, and so forth, so that I can have that um, peace of mind that I have the energy right there. So, you know, it's a little bit of a personal question for everyone, but I'm I'm on the side that if I, if I can save a dollar today in, in you know, October of 2022, that's better than me potentially saving a dollar and five cents in October of 2025 or whatever, whatever that time might be. So that's, that's at least my personal opinion. Well, I think that uh, some of us also are looking and saying, hey, what can we do to help the environment? And, and Absolutely. there may be some degree of cost associated with it, but it's a, it's a cost worth 
bearing uh, given, uh, you know, kind of our duty to the planet to be something of a good shepherd to uh, to the environment that we live in. Uh, what about the non-hardware costs of solar? What are what are those, and and what should be kind of taken into account when considering solar? Yeah, so so non-hardware costs, what we call we refer to them as soft costs, are are non-trivial. This is the cost of anything you can't drop on your foot or hold in your hand. Um, and you know, in the U.S. today, and it's been this way for a while for a residential solar system. Depending where you are, but in the ballpark of about 60% of the cost comes from soft costs. And so this can be the cost related to permitting your system, related to any siting or zoning issues, and be related to the finance costs, labor costs, customer acquisition costs. And so there's just a, a lot of different pieces that go into things that are not physically going onto your roof. And so our office is aggressively going after trying to work with all of these. We have a, a platform called the Solar App Plus which is something that we're rolling out to local jurisdictions across the country so that they can use to bring uniformity to permitting processes or make it easier for companies to permit. Permitting is done you know, at the local area. So they each, each permitting zone might do things slightly different in each jurisdiction. So how can we bring uniformity up, make it easier for people to do business by filling out the same kind of information in different areas? So that's a big one where we're trying to drive down those costs. They're trying to share data about, about PV systems, their durability, their payback to make financiers and other entities more comfortable with this, which can drive down financing costs. You know, we're working to, to share more information with homeowners so they understand solar and that they can engage more productively with, um, with uh, installers. So there might be less lost leads and drive down the customer acquisition. And then on top of this, we're working with groups like utilities to drive down the interconnection cost of the system. So how do we there's a cost that comes with connecting somebody to the grid because the utility has to study its connection, particularly for large scale systems. So we're working with every possible player in that space to drive down those timelines and bring new technologies to those spaces. And so while we do a lot and we're known for on the hardware research end of the spectrum, we are investing heavily in both our time um, and effort to, to drive down these soft costs as, as well. And we were hoping to see some great process and we've already seen some great progress today. Well, that's great. Uh, I recently had Mayor Rex Paris from Lancaster, who's one of the first uh, net zero cities in the U.S. Uh, and his uh, one of his first acts as mayor back in like 2008 was to eliminate essentially the permitting process for solar. So if you came in there with a request to do solar within 30 minutes, they had to uh, approve your permit. That's awesome. I love that. And like, well, just real quick, you know, we're seeing like for the solar app plus permitting signs being cut down by over two weeks on average. We're seeing single day permitting now. And it's awesome to hear like a group like Lancaster really pushing the ball forward on that. And now that's an example the rest of the country can follow and, and hopefully implement, you know, nationwide. Right. Well, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern and I've got uh, Garrett Nelson, deputy director of the U S department of energy, solar energy technologies office. And uh, we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Garrett Nelson, Deputy Director of U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office. And uh, Garrett, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the the new technology that you had talked about earlier, as far as incorporating the solar panels into buildings, maybe commercial buildings. I'm wondering if residential buildings. So it's just kind of part of the design, where it just kind of uh, 
pieces in as, as part of the, the building versus a an add-on to it. Uh, and another thing that you talked about was regarding cars. I, I, I saw recently there's a new car manufacturer that has uh, fold, uh, the cell, the solar cells on the car and it, and it powers the battery and you can literally uh, charge it without ever plugging it into the uh, grid, which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start with that. And that's, that's definitely exciting. We're seeing a number of major car makers really start to think about how to do that. Um, you know, of course, the, the energy density of a solar cell in terms of the amount of energy that it creates, it takes a while to fully charge a car. But if you really think about it, like at the, if you're only adding, let's say, a few miles here and there, and I forget the exact number of miles you might expect in a day, but let's say you add a few tens of miles to things, the average person's really only driving about 30 miles every day anyway. And so you could see a situation where you're really able to, to do maybe all of your local driving based off of directly sun, sun coming directly onto your car, which is, which is really exciting. And so you know, there's certainly work that needs to be done to understand how can we integrate all these cells? You know, how do you operate? How do you fix cells if something goes wrong and things of that nature? We're really at the infancy, but it's really exciting what this might be able to do in the long run in the vehicle space. We're even seeing people say, put modules or cells on the tops of tractor trailers where if you have a refrigeration unit or something back there, you may be able to run a portion of that off of electricity that you're just gathering as you drive, which can then subsequently cut down the amount of gas or, or other fuels that you use and cut down in your carbon footprint. So there's some really exciting stuff going on in that space. You know, on the building side of things, um, in the residential homes, you know, California is moving towards a mandate that every home must be solar ready, which is really exciting so that, that solar can be deployed quickly if someone wants it or even at the time of installation. You know, of course, there are products out there like the Tesla Solar Shingles. Uh, CertainTeed is another company that has kind of a shingles product. So you're seeing those become a bit more prevalent. Uh, they're still a bit more expensive than the traditional modules themselves. But as, again, these are things where, where markets evolve, we hope to see the, the, the cost come down further. And for people who are you know, maybe a little bit more aesthetically conscious, like this can be a good place for them to go. So that's really exciting. And, and what's also neat is... You know, we're seeing solar get integrated into different kinds of buildings. We uh, run something called the American Made Solar Prize, which is a prize program for new startup businesses trying to come up with clever ways to help the deployment of solar. One of our original prize recipients called Phase 3 Solar out of Oregon is working with the manufactured home community such that they can integrate solar at, in basically the factory when they're manufacturing that home. And then when it goes out into the field, boom, there the solar is and it's ready to go. And so I think what's great is as we see the cost of solar come down, we're going to see more and more creative business models come along, figure out how we can integrate solar into different parts of our lives and, and hopefully a vast majority inside of our buildings so we can consume as much as, as, as we can close to where we need it. Well, yeah, you're talking about like just in inside or I thought you were alluding to like in commercial buildings, there's a tremendous amount of light that's, that's hitting the surface of a building. Uh, is there... Is there a way or are they working on ways to convert that energy uh, into or that light into energy? Um, if you're referring in, inside of a building, that's a little less economical at, at this point. Um, and it's not really a space that we really invest heavily in or, or, or yeah, that much at all. Again, we're really focused on, say, those, those rooftops. And that's part of the reason why I got into solar to begin with is, again, you see these massive rooftops that we could be deploying solar energy on top of. In that case, you know, we're looking at different ways of systems to reduce the amount of weight that's up there to open up more roof space being utilized because some places have weight limitations. How do we make sure that we can um, 
you know, I guess deploy things as fast as possible. So reduce roof penetrations and things of that nature to get solar up in those large areas as possible. Because I don't know, I, I, whenever I fly into a city, I'm always looking out the window, looking for all those big multi-acre buildings. And it always makes me a little upset that there's not enough solar or any solar on a lot of them. And so that's, that's a big driver for me to keep working on this space and getting up every day to come to work. Well, tell us, uh, did the Inflation Reduction Act uh, give any incentives for commercial building owners to, to put solar up on those buildings? I forget if it's specifically offhand for commercial buildings themselves. I'd have to double check that. I don't know all, all the lines of it, but you know, we're continuing, they're continuing investment tax credits, which can help buy down the cost. There's also production tax credits are now available for solar energy as well. So this gives people some different ways in terms of thinking about financing and realizing other economic gains from their system. And so, you know, I know that there are a lot of large companies out there today deploying solar. And I have to believe that with these other incentives in place, we're going to see more and more moving into that space as people try to hit both their, their green goals, but also, you know, increase profitability or, or drive down costs in other ways. When you talk about production tax credits, are you really talking about tax credits that benefit the manufacturers primarily? Uh, well, it's funny you should say that because there's there's two kinds of production tax credits. So there actually is a part of the Inflation Reduction Act that is focused on the production of solar cells and solar modules. And that's what we really think is going to be a driver towards driving domestic manufacturing. But then on the other side, for, for system deployment, there is an investment tax credit where if you, know, you invest X number of dollars, you're credited Y percentage of that against your tax. But there's also production. So if you have a system that is producing X amount of megawatt hours, then you could potentially get a tax credit for that. You have to pick one or the other when you're a system developer. And so the production tax credit has been around a while for the, the wind space, and now they're opening it up for the, the solar energy space. And so it just gives flexibility for people who are investing in systems and owning systems in, in terms of different ways that they could potentially realize uh, benefits, uh, economic benefits from their systems themselves. Now, uh, you mentioned wind now finally in uh, into the program. I, I don't know if you solar guys are kind of in competition with the wind folks or, you know, where where did, you know, I read recently that wind is is the cheapest form of electricity. Is solar catching up? Uh, how far are you guys uh, away from each other? Yeah, I'd say it's 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 friendly competition. I, I always prefer sunny days to windy days, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, we're I think we're neck and neck in terms of the largest bulk or lowest bulk scale electricity costs, but we know we're going to need them working together. And the nice thing is, is that there is some symbiotic relationship where the wind tends to blow harder at night than it does during the day, which obviously complements solar energy really well. And when we think about decarbonizing the electricity sector, the research that we've done in our solar future study. You know, if we get to a decarbonized electricity sector by 2035, you know, we saw electricity, about 40% of the electricity coming from solar, roughly 40% of the electricity coming from wind, and then the final percentage from a mixture of other assets. And so we, we think that, well, of course, we want to be in a little bit of friendly competition. Like there's plenty of room at the table for both of us to help kind of reach this low carbon future. And we're, we're rooting for each other. That That's for sure. Well, that's good to hear. So is there a, uh, a wind office at the uh, Department of Energy, and uh, you know, do you guys work together? How how does that go? Yeah, there is a wind energy technologies office, and and we work very closely with them. I think, you know, the the biggest stuff we do is thinking about the integration of both of our assets to the grid. And so we invest a lot, particularly at the bulk transmission level, about how does that grid operate with intermittent assets like solar and wind going on there and storage. And you know the other thing that's that's really an important thing is 
These are what are called inverter-based assets. And so the world today has been powered by basically what are called inertial assets. You have something that's spinning at 60 hertz, and that maintains the frequency of the grid. But as we move to inverter-based assets, you're going to need you know, new ways of maintaining that frequency on the grid and wind, storage, or all inverter-based assets. So we're investing together um, in the future of what are called grid-forming inverters that allow these grids to help support the grid instead of just being attached to the grid and just kind of not doing much. And so just being giving electricity, but also managing electricity on the grid, I should say. So there's a lot of, that's just one example of how we work together, but we're also looking at communications and sensing on the grid, bringing new tools to grid operators, um, looking at improving communication systems, forecasting, cybersecurity. There's just a, a wide breadth of stuff that we can work on together to, to make the grid as, as resilient and powerful as in the future. And we work very closely with the wind team on that, among other offices in the Department of Energy. There's a lot of people at stakes in this case. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, what work is being done and maybe in particular what the um, Inflation Reduction Act did to or is doing to help uh, foster a, a more resilient, stronger grid, because I've certainly read a bit about the dysfunctionality of our electricity grid because it isn't really nationally uh, driven. There's a lot of different state systems and multi-regional systems that don't always work so well together. Yeah, and so, I mean, the DOE is investing in kind of every layer from the distribution grid to the large transmission grids to entire interconnections to make them, you know, work more seamlessly with one another. You know, I think there's actually a lot of really great stuff inside of the uh, infrastructure bill from last year. So in that case, you know, large investments in thinking about how can we improve transmission technologies, make them more efficient so we can use the transmissions that we already have um, more efficiently and at lower cost. There is a lot of investment in what are called uh, just kind of demonstration parks. There's a whole new office of clean energy demonstrations here at the Department of Energy, whose role is going to be uh, to invest in first of a kind technologies, which we can see being then subsequently being deployed and adopted on the grid to make the grid a more resilient space. And so it's, it's really one of these things where it's kind of an, an all of the above approach. And we're seeing some really great stuff at like the infrastructure bill. Um, I forget the specific names of the stuff inside of the Inflation Reduction Act. But then, you know, there's continuing discussions about how we can be helping with other things like permitting of, of interconnect, uh, permitting of transmission, things of that nature. So there's really a multi-pronged approach uh, happening from the policies that we're seeing around D.C. And you know, the Department of Energy here is, is here to help support the implementation of these um, of these of these policy developments, which is our, our key role. I think you know, I think at the end of the day, people want to know one thing about the solar energy or the Department of Energy is. There's a lot of different futures and a lot of different ways that we could look in the future. We're here to help make sure that we're doing the research such that the technology is there to be able to have a resilient, secure, and operable grid, no matter what the policy future is, no matter how the grid evolves. We want to make sure that we're not being surprised by any new technology. We're here ready to implement it for the betterment of the American people and the American economy. Well, uh, great work, Garrett. Uh, really appreciate you being on the show and the great work you're doing at the Department of Energy. Uh, you know, it's fascinating stuff, and it almost sounds like uh, building a plane as you're up in the air. I mean, because things are technology is moving so fast, there isn't really another way to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's impressive the breadth of the work that the uh, Department of Energy is doing and, and uh, how we're scaling up for a clean energy future. So thank you. Kudos to you and all your colleagues there. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Uh, you can follow us on uh, our podcast at Apple Music and Spotify. 
Um, and uh, come back, listen to us next week.